This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. Today, teasing out those at risk of heart attack or stroke who aren't picked up by the usual methods. A way for women to potentially reduce their chances of developing ovarian cancer by up to 40%. And the controversy over the decision by the Therapeutic Goods Administration to allow authorised psychiatrists to prescribe the active ingredient of magic mushrooms, psilocybin, for people with treatment-resistant depression and MDMA, ecstasy, for treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress disorder. The charity Mind Medicine Australia has been pushing for this aggressively and has been actively involved in the commercial arrangements for the importation of psilocybin. On the other side, psychiatric researchers such as Professor Pat McGorry are concerned especially about psilocybin. Here's Professor McGorry and Peter Hunt from Mind Medicine Australia on recent health reports. The main criticism that I have is not even the study of the drugs. Maybe it's fair enough for other people, even if we don't feel comfortable to study psilocybin as well. But what's happened is that the TGA, after initially regarding the evidence as insufficient in response to a very intense response from the group Mind Medicine Australia that's leading this, have actually reversed their decision. And it seems a very unusual decision. I think the risk is going to potentially outweigh the benefits, if there are any. Everything requires more research. You know, that could apply to virtually every medicine that you talk about on your show. But there comes a point in time when the, when the data is sufficiently robust that people who, frankly, are suffering terribly, nothing is working for them, should be given access to them if they and their psychiatrists believe it's appropriate. But Pat McGorry at the University of Melbourne isn't alone in having reservations. Susan Russell is Professor of Cognitive Neuropsychiatry at Swinburne University in Melbourne and is commencing a large Australian trial of psilocybin in people with treatment-resistant depression. Welcome to the Health Report, Susan. Hello there. Lovely to speak to you, Norman. How surprised were you at the TGA's decision on psilocybin? I was enormously surprised. Um, uh, This has been tried several times over the last few years. And uh, the researchers in Australia that have been doing a lot of work with both psilocybin um, and other compounds have uh, been very critical of it being downscheduled. So for it to happen all of a sudden without any consultation with researchers and clinicians in this space seems uh, a little uh, weird to me. I mean, when I interviewed Mind Medicine Australia, Peter Hunt, he maintained that there was a lot of consultation with uh, researchers, particularly quoted uh, London-based researcher David Nutt. I think uh, David Nutt was the only person that was invited to any consultations. And uh, David, although he's a dear colleague of mine, in fact, I did my training with him in London very many years ago, is known for his controversial opinions on this. I, I you know, I've got a great amount of respect for him. But I think in this case, um, I think he's uh, spoken out of turn. We really do need a lot more further research. So I'm very um, grateful for people like Pat McGorry for speaking out. But I also think we do need to make sure that we're speaking out with the right evidence. So what's your concern based on the evidence? So my concern is this, that there is some very preliminary evidence that these compounds work and work very well um, for certain individuals. So then uh, that comes to what my concerns are. It is for certain individuals. We don't have enough evidence yet to work out which individuals are going to benefit from these um, uh, compounds and which ones aren't. And we do know that some people have quite adverse reactions. 
The other problem that I have, and this is one that, uh, that nobody has been talking about in the uh, field apart from myself and a few of my colleagues, is for people that it does work, it has a profound effect on their well-being. Like, and I do mean absolutely profound. These are people with treatment-resistant problems that have been unwell for sometimes 20 years. And we find with them they get something called a burden of normality. These are people that haven't finished school, haven't finished university, can't hold down a job. And then all of a sudden, for the first time, can think clearly for the first time in 20 years. And they have to put their lives back together. So when they have these profound changes to their lives, we're able to work out what the correct pathway to care for them is. And this might include occupational um, therapy. It might include a very um, comprehensive social work. But at least we need to work this out in research before we even can think about rolling it out into um, the clinical landscape and rolling it out into health services. So you're doing my head in a little bit here, Susan, because putting aside any side effects of the psilocybin itself, what you're saying is this is a side effect of success. What's yes. the trajectory of these people if they have this psychological reaction to coming out into a world where they're not burdened by depression? So we have done some work prior to this, not with psilocybin or uh, any of the other psychedelics. We've done it with deep brain stimulation. And, and just to uh, explain here, this is where you put electrodes into the brain, where, in parts of the brain where you think depression is originating and stimulate exactly. that part of the brain. Exactly. Um, and for those that don't have appropriate long-term care and follow-up and aren't given this really intensive psychosocial rehabilitation that they want, the um, after effects of having a greater improvement of their symptoms, so a really real profound reduction of their depression, um, they get worse again. So, you know, we'd be, we'd be going into a cycle where they would then need more and more intervention rather than actually working with the, the good effects from the, the psilocybin in the first place. So paradoxically, <laughs> is there a self-harm risk? Exactly there is, and that's what concerns me. So that was what I was going to come to. So the self-harm suicide risk could actually be elevated in these individuals. Because if you can imagine, they've never worked before. They've never had, you know, productive relationships. And then we're not giving them any help to work through those issues. So what needs to happen then? I mean, the, the, the genie's out of the bottle. My medicine industry is training all these psychiatrists and psychologists and so on. We haven't even sorted out what the psychotherapy is that should go with it. Um, oh, my God. Tell me about it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, I mean, is it too late for the TGA to go back on this? I feel I feel that it is. I feel that the the, the TGA really were went into this blindfolded and um, very much pushed into it by by my medicine. But independent of that, so people like myself and all my colleagues really have to deal with this now. And what I say to the TGA is, you can't. You've got to stop giving people the wrong information. I went to a webinar the other day where the TGA were telling us that the Royal College of Psychiatrists actually had training. They don't have any training whatsoever and they need to be on the front foot here and start to talk to the Royal College about what the Royal College can do and work with them appropriately to come up with some guidelines quickly unless they're going to change their mind. I'm not saying that they should change their mind but what I'm saying is we've all got to be on the same page moving forward from the 1st of July. Okay, well, we might try and get TJ on to talk about this, although that's a hard thing to do. Susan, thanks for joining us on The Health Report. 
No problem. Thanks, Norman. Susan Russell is Professor of Cognitive Neuropsychiatry at Swinburne University in Melbourne. I'm with you, Norman. That's really turning my brain inside out. Yeah, the fact that just... You can imagine, just uh, you've had this disability, suddenly it's gone, and the, the ability to cope, it's, it is quite you know, an interesting concept. And yeah. It's not worrying. And uh, we've been following this for a few weeks, as we hinted before. And one of the issues left hanging after your interview with Peter Hunt from Mind Medicine Australia a couple of weeks ago was how Australians would access safe psilocybin. And Peter Hunt was coy and said an announcement was imminent. One has come out now. Yeah, so not long after that health report, an announcement was made by a company called Optimi Health or Optimi Health, which uh, has signed a purchase order with Mind Medicine Australia to supply uh, encapsulated psilocybin from a Canadian manufacturing facility. It's unclear exactly what the business arrangement is with Mind Medicine Australia, um, and it looks as though Mind Medicine Australia might be the importer here, and it's just not entirely clear. But um, this is supposedly a company that will make psilocybin under good manufacturing practices. So that um, we'll put that uh, press release up on the Health Sports website. And we'll keep following this over the coming weeks too. Yep. And now you've got this story on you know, the risk of heart disease via your calcium in your heart. Yeah. So cardiovascular disease is the biggest killer globally. And we do have some ways to slow or reverse its progression. Lifestyle changes are the obvious one. Drugs like statins, if lifestyle changes aren't enough. And there are tests to show if people are at high or low risk of cardiovascular disease. But these tests, which are things which are very familiar to health report listeners, things like cholesterol or blood pressure tests, they have their limits. There are some people who are definitely at high risk who are put on statins, and there are some people who are definitely at low risk who aren't, but then there's a big chunk of people in the middle, about 40% of people who are classified as intermediate risk. And researchers say a way to stratify these people at intermediate risk is by looking at the levels of calcium in their coronary arteries, the main blood vessels that supply blood to the heart. We will hear from one of the study authors in a moment, Norman, but first I want to introduce Brian, he thought he was fine, but he got a shock when he had coronary artery calcium screening. Had suffered no discomfort, uh, had no signs of any health issues or anything of that nature. You know, my levels, insofar as the cholesterol was concerned, were not high. Um, the dietary uh, regime was pretty good. Then to find out that the score was so high was quite a shock. I was basically um, just a walking time bomb uh, prime candidate for a, a stroke heart attack of that nature, yes. So yeah, Brian was really shocked by that. As you can hear, he really feels like he dodged a bullet. Initially, uh, the family GP was, no, he said, you don't need that. That's not going to tell you anything. It's a waste of time, a waste of money. Well, as it turned out, um, it's, uh, it saved my life. So researchers here in Australia are now calling for coronary artery calcium scoring to be a standard part of cardiovascular disease screening. I spoke to Tom Marwick from the Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute earlier. Fundamentally, we think that there is um, potential value for adding coronary calcium scoring for a subgroup of those people. The story here is that the first step in evaluating cardiovascular risk is to check simple things such as blood pressure and, and cholesterol, and that generates a thing called a cardiovascular risk score. About 40% of people end up in an intermediate level of risk. It's very difficult to know how best to manage them, and the coronary calcium score is very helpful. What is the coronary calcium score? What does the, what does the test involve? 
The test involves a, a CT scan, uh, which is a, a very brief uh, scan of the chest. It's done without contrast. It's different from a CT coronary angiogram, so it happens without contrast or any pre-medication. Basically, is done within a few minutes and then is read on a pretty automated basis for scoring the extent of and the spread and the and the severity of the calcification. CTs aren't too invasive for the patient, but they cost money. What's mm. the what's the cost benefit analysis here? Well, this is exactly where we targeted this paper. So uh, we know from overseas experience that CTs are used for this particular group of patients. Their uptake in Australia has been less. I think partially for economic reasons, they are not reimbursed with an MBS item number. And, and one of the uh, limitations in getting such an item number has been the lack of a cost of effectiveness analysis. So this is what we've done. So we took a group of uh, individuals, um, nearly 1,100, who are participating in one of our studies called CourtCAD, and uh, we looked at their baseline characteristics, and we think that's pretty representative of the Australian population. The studies are multi-centre study across several states. And then we looked at the projected outcomes using various scenarios. We understand the likelihood of developing a coronary problem if you have uh, a positive CT scan and if you have a negative CT scan, and that allowed us to project both the costs and the outcomes subsequently. And the short answer is that doing a CT calcium score in this group of people would be cost effective. It would enable us to identify disease and treat more people and particularly treat the people that need treatment. And that's a big problem at the moment. Right. So from the healthcare system point of view, it's a good way of stratifying people. What is then the intervention for the individual when they've had this scan? How does it change what interventions might have been offered to them otherwise? The single most important intervention here is lipid control. And generally speaking at the moment, that's with agents called statins. There are certainly other treatments that have become or are becoming available for that. So uh, there was a, a, a new medication just released at the American College of Cardiology just a, a week ago uh, showing similar benefit to statins. And then there are a group of drugs which are more expensive called PCSK9 inhibitors. So the issue is that we have these agents that are effective. Really, the challenge is targeting them at the people who would get the most benefit. And the rationale of doing the coronary calcium score is that it identifies people that have got the beginnings of coronary disease so that we're not just treating the risk factor, we're treating the beginning of the disease. And in terms of the patient's perception of risk, that is a very meaningful change. And the types of patients that fall into this risk, well, we know that cardiovascular disease disproportionately affects people who are already living with high levels of disadvantage. Mm, this is very, I mean, this to us is extremely important because uh, there is a huge social gradient of cardiovascular disease and coronary artery disease in particular. And, you know, we have here a tool that is useful for evaluating risk and, and guiding treatment. But paradoxically, because the tool costs money, the people who would get the most benefit from it have the least access to it. So this is the reason why we think that this cost benefit and cost effectiveness analysis is so important. So talk to me about what the next steps would be if you get what you're asking for. You're looking for Medicare subsidisation of this CT scan and inclusion in guidelines for clinicians? Yes, very much so. So the Heart Foundation and the Cardiac Society already have a position statement about the use of CT that talks about its use, particularly in this intermediate risk population. So the missing link is not so much the knowledge that 
this is beneficial. I think there's an acceptance of that. I think it's a, a matter of some discussion within government about changing policy and, and changing reimbursement for this particular measurement. One of the things in the discourse around statins is that perhaps sometimes they're overused. Does this help ameliorate that? Well, I think it does. Uh, I mean, I think as we look at the use of statins at the moment, people would accept that if you have high risk, then you need to be on statin treatment. I don't think there's really much debate about that. I think the situation where we struggle the most is people at intermediate risk. I think the low risk people, you know, we would accept wouldn't don't require treatment. It's this approximately 40% of people in the middle, some of whom are at risk, but we don't know who those are. And the very impressive thing about our findings in the CourtCAD study, which is what under, underpins this cost-effectiveness analysis, is that about half of the people in that group had a coronary calcium score of zero. In other words, their risk within the next five to 10 years is extremely low. So if you think about how that would translate into effective use of treatment, if you didn't have the coronary calcium score and you wanted to treat the patients very actively, you'd treat all of them, half of them would be deriving really minimal or no benefit because they don't have any calcium. On the other hand, if you're very conservative and you say, well, I don't want to overuse statins and I'm not going to treat any of those intermediate risk patients, half of them have got calcium. So they've already got disease. So we think that this is the missing link between the question of under or overusing statins in this population. It allows us to subgroup that into people that will and won't receive benefit. Yeah, 40% is a pretty large chunk of the population. To be able to break that down further is really beneficial. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much for your interest. Professor Tom Marwick is Director of the Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute. So, Tegan, a really interesting story there. I mean, one of the issues that's running, another issue that's running at the moment is how low should you go if you do need your cholesterol lowered and you are at risk? Mm. And uh, that would, and then the question is, what should your doctor do? Should you um, treat to target? In other words, the LDL is what counts here. And should you go really low? Like just you know, for people who've got cholesterol problems, they might know the numbers here, but should you go low as 1.2, 1.3? And should you just go straight into bang a high dose of statin? Or should you treat to target and get it down? To, in other words, adjust the dose of the statin to a lower level. And it turns out from recent research that you could actually just go bang to a high dose of statin to get you down there. And it's just as good as treating to target. But the, the main point here is you can't go too low. Well, that's good to know as well. Now, changing subject, what would you say, Tegan, if I told you there was a way for women to reduce the risk of ovarian cancer by around 40% at pretty much no extra cost to the healthcare system? Uh, is that a trick question? That would be a game changer. Ovarian cancer is one of those ones that, because we don't really have a good way of screening for it, people often don't know they've got it till they're too progressed to be able to sort of do any good interventions. That's right. And while there are genes, and we'll come back to this a little bit later, somebody who knows 5,000 times more than me about this, is while there are genes which can increase your risk of ovarian cancer, most women who get ovarian cancer don't have the genes. And so there's no way of knowing. Now, what this is about is the fact, the mind-bending notion that, in fact, 50% of ovarian cancers don't start in the ovary. They actually start in the fallopian tube. So, Tegan, if you can just imagine here, you've got the ovary, well, like a little egg-shaped thing, and you've got a basketball mitt sitting <laughs> next to it. I'm sorry, a basket. <laughs> yeah, just imagine a basketball mitt. And that basketball mitt... <laughs> 
catches the eggs and then pushes them, you know, and then they go down into the fallopian tube and uh, to the uterus to be impregnated or not, as the case may be. I now, can see why you went into medicine and not into sport, Norman. Well, well, well that's right, because my basketball mitt doesn't move very much. The basketball mitt is where the cancer starts. And the idea here is, could you remove it simply and in when a woman is already having another procedure. Now, I covered this many years ago with um, the person who really pioneered this idea, who's Associate Professor Diane Miller, who's a gynecological oncologist at the uh, University of British Columbia in Vancouver. It's hard to believe that for 200 years we thought this was an ovarian cancer and now suddenly it's a fallopian tube cancer. But that understanding that the cancer starts in the fallopian tube gave us an incredible epiphany that here's now a chance to actually prevent this cancer. By simply changing the way we do hysterectomy, not asking more women to have hysterectomies, but if you're having a hysterectomy, take the tube out at the same time, there's pretty good evidence that we will be able to prevent a large number of these cancers. In our British Columbia ovarian cancer database, we know that 20% of the women who developed high-grade serous cancers had had a hysterectomy in the past. That means for those 20% of women, we would have had an opportunity to prevent that cancer by taking the tube out at the time of hysterectomy. Another procedure that's very commonly done in North America is the tubal ligation. When women feel that they do not wish to have any further children, 20 to 30% of North American women will have a tubal ligation. In the past, we used to recommend destroying as little of the tube as possible in case the woman changed her mind and she wanted to have it reversed. But now, if a woman or a family changes their mind and wishes to have more children, it's much more common that they would have assisted reproductive technologies like in vitro fertilization. And because of that, I think this is another opportunity to remove the fibrillated end of the tube instead of tubal ligation. Again, another potential to prevent another 10 to 20 percent of these cancers. Diane Miller, um, University of British Columbia, talking to me well over 10 years ago. Well, last month, a major global cancer research organisation called for a wider introduction of fallopian tube removal for ovarian cancer prevention. Now, it's never really taken off in Australia, but has had its proponents, one of whom is a leading gynaecological oncologist, Professor Andreas Obermeyer at the University of Queensland. Welcome back to the Health Report after a long gap, Andreas. Hi, Dr Swan. What are the barriers here? To implementing this? One of the barriers is knowledge and evidence. So we really think that there are 40% of, of ovarian cancers are actually arising in the fallopian tubes, but we don't really know that exactly because so we don't know if all ovarian cancers um, actually arise in the fallopian tube. The other thing is implementation. So if someone would take this serious, we would need to start a lot of implementation research and understand the barriers of why that is not implemented. As we heard from Professor Miller, this could be implemented at the time of cesarean section rather than putting a, a filthy clip on the fallopian tubes to remove the fallopian tubes, but also at the time of hysterectomy to offer the women a removal of the fallopian tubes. But didn't she manage to implement in British Columbia and to some extent other parts of Canada? In Canada, that's the big advantage that they have is that they record procedures in such a way that they actually know exactly in how many patients the fallopian tubes are removed. Whereas in our Australian system, uh, with 
the Medicare item numbers, we don't really know whether a hysterectomy was performed with or without removal of fallopian tubes. Why would you leave the fallopian tubes if you're doing a hysterectomy? You are aware that I'm a gynecologic oncologist and I do hysterectomies. We either remove the ovaries or the fallopian tubes, uh, but we never, you know, so we discuss removal of... Exactly right. But, for example, we did a study... Um, and we published that in 2019 in the Australian New Zealand uh, Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology. And we found that fallopian tubes were removed in about 70 to 80% of women who either had an abdominal, so an open hysterectomy or a laparoscopic hysterectomy, but in only about 13% of women who had a vaginal hysterectomy. That would be one of the uh, angle points where one could start investigating why that is the case. And what about tubal ligation? Because that's less common now in women than it used to be. In a tubal ligation, you basically put a metal clip on the fallopian tubes and you you basically block the way um, the the egg could travel from the ovary uh, via the fallopian tubes to the uterus. And what and really good quality research has found out that you could as well have the fallopian tubes removed at the time of the cesarean, for example, cesarean section, or or even if there is not a, uh, it's it's just a minor procedure. And the thing is that it doesn't interfere with your hormones, right? So, uh, so it's I not like taking the ovary out. Yeah, it's exactly. Just... So sometimes women say, "Well, what does that do with my with my hormones?" It does nothing with your hormones. So. And presumably, I think it's the point that Diane Miller made, was that um, if you change your mind and you want to have babies, you can undergo IVF because, in fact, reconnecting the tubes once you've had a ligation increases your risk of an ectopic pregnancy. Exactly right. So, for example, sometimes I see women who feel feel or who actually have a genetic predisposition to ovarian cancer uh, or, for example, women who needed IVF for the first pregnancy. And uh, in order to manage the risk of ovarian cancer, we just removed the fallopian tube and the patient just goes on uh, and has IVF and falls pregnant that way. I'm not suggesting that should be done for every every woman, right? So, uh, But for selected women, uh, this is a really good approach. And these women often then in their 40s would come back and have the ovaries removed. But I'm often saying to them, look, if you feel that you are at risk right now, this is what we can do, and you're not giving up on fertility. Now, you, you started this off by saying more research is needed, but really, is more research needed here? I mean, if, if a woman knows that it's going to reduce her chances of ovarian cancer, even though she doesn't have the genes, and it's sporadic ovarian cancer, which is relatively rare, certainly much rarer than breast cancer, why shouldn't a woman be given that option? Why shouldn't gynecologists as a routine be giving all women an option if they're undergoing a procedure like tubal ligation or hysterectomy or even thinking about how they're going to control their fertility moving forward uh, and tubal ligation being an alternative to seeing a vasectomy in their partner? I would totally agree with you. Um, but uh, as a fact, not all women are given the options. <laughs> And so well, that's my point. I would, yes, exactly, exactly. But wouldn't you then start working out why these women are not given the option? Is it, is it uh, a knowledge deficiency thing? Uh, is it um, 
are there are there are there any other barriers? Are there systems and process barriers? Wouldn't you want to know why that doesn't happen? So that you can advise your gynecological colleagues accordingly. Absolutely, and I do that. Uh, and and sometimes, like I'm just coming back from a conference, uh, and sometimes uh, gynecologists say to me, "Ah, oh, since you spoke to me about, I, I now do this regularly," and uh, and that's obviously a good thing to do. But it shouldn't require um, me having individual uh, conversations uh, with gynecologists to change the clinical practice. Andreas, thanks very much for joining us on the health report. We'll probably keep an eye on this one. Thank you, Norman. Professor Andreas Obermeyer is a gynaecological oncologist at the University of Queensland. And Tegan, that's the health report for this week. It is indeed. I'm Tegan Taylor. I'm Norman Swan. We'll see you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.